0: weeks ago, started this new series in the book of Daniel. We're calling it Courageous Living in Troubled Times. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I I just uh, briefly asked, how many of you feel like you live in troubled times? And uh, yeah, I see a lot of hands out there. So I think uh, the book of Daniel has a lot of stuff in there that is very applicable for us today as God's people in the midst of troubled times, a troubled culture, a troubled world. Uh, so today, uh, we're in the second half of chapter one, Daniel chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be there in a few minutes. Uh, we're calling today, dare to be a Daniel. Columbia researcher, Sheena Iyengar has found that the average person makes about 70 decisions every day. I'll pause there while you can start thinking about all the decisions you make every day and counting them. And if you were to count those all up and do the multiplication, I've done that for you already, all right? That's about 75,500 decisions a year. That's a lot of decisions. Uh, Over uh, 70 years, that's about 1,788,000 decisions that you make. That's a lot of decisions, isn't it? The 20th century philosopher Albert Camus said, life is a sum of all your choices, that's interesting to me. You you put all those 1,700,000 and some thousand choices together, and that makes much of who you are. Life is a series of choices. We make our decisions, and then in turn, those decisions make us. So as we come today to our text, we find our friend Daniel facing a crisis in Babylon. The seemingly small decision that he's about to make will radically alter his life trajectory. Now, before we delve into today's text, though, I want to take a few minutes. I'm going to share a video with you. This particular video comes from something called the Bible Project, and uh, the Bible Project—I really enjoy it. By the way, you can find it uh, if uh, on Right Now Media. We introduced that a few weeks ago. Uh, We have a subscription to that. And so if you need help uh, figuring out how to get on to Right Now Media, just contact us at the office. We'll help you to do that. Uh, But you can find it also on their website, The Bible Project. But uh, this particular video I wanna share with you, I don't show a lot of videos during our sermons. Rarely do I do that. But this one, I I just, uh, I think it gives such a concise overview of the entire book of Daniel, which I found very helpful. And so I hope that you do too. This is about eight minutes long, so it's going to be a good chunk of our service today. But I just encourage you to watch the video, and then we'll come back and jump into our text today. So let's have the video.
1: The book of Daniel. The story is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, whose later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they are really wise and capable and they are recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they are pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse and they choose faithfulness to the Torah and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first the king of Babylon has a dream that it turns out only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in and it shatters the statue and it becomes this huge mountain. Now this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book. And this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon. And they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue. Which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And So the friends are persecuted. They are thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death and they are exalted by the king who now acknowledges their god as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They are both filled with pride because of their imperial power and so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions. Which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man who is an image for both God's covenant people but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden God who is called the Ancient of Days comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution. These are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that and that is what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7 but this time they're symbolized by a ram who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians and then by a goat who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so, he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So, for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so, he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so, their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this and he has one final vision. We are shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It is Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now there has been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160's BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It is a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and do not acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that is what the book of Daniel is all about.
0: All right. Well, I hope that was helpful to you. And uh, I suppose some of you are already thinking, wait, I I heard something else about chapter eight or chapter nine or whatever. I heard this. Um, We'll we'll get there. We'll talk about some of those ideas and different uh, takes on Daniel. But I, I really am touched by the idea that God's faithfulness exists for his people, and that is really gonna be the slant that we use as we work our way as a congregation through the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel's decision-making process, as we mentioned already, and his attitude that we see in today's text is the first of numerous times that we're gonna see this very remarkable young man have an impact on world history. And I believe that this process can serve as a model and as a reminder for us as we make our own decisions. So let's begin by examining the opening section of of our text today, verses 8 through 16 of chapter 1. I've chosen to read this from the New Living Translation, and I'd like you to read it with me. The words will be on the screen. Let's begin. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Then Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. Amen. God's word. Well, the key, I think, to this passage is found in that very first verse we read, that little phrase, but Daniel was determined. Daniel was determined. The old King James Version says, Daniel purposed in his heart. Another translation says, Daniel made up his mind. The English Standard Version translated as, as Daniel resolved. Everything else flows from that mindset that Daniel has. You know, many times in our life, we don't realize how important small choices can be. I think that's especially true when we're young. Would you agree with me? Many of life's most important decisions are made during our teens and early 20s. Will I go to college if so, what should I major in? Should I learn a trade? Should I join the military? Should I get married? And if so, who will I marry? And how will I meet this future mate? And when will it happen? And what career will I choose? Who will be my close friends, my influencers, my mentors? And sooner or later, we face the very most important decision of all. Will I decide to follow Jesus Christ? Choices. Decisions. Which way to go? Two roads diverge. Which one will I follow? I can't take them both. Well, in this text, we find Daniel, the teenager, facing a crisis in Babylon. The decision that he is about to make will radically change his whole life. And initially, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But it turns out to be very big indeed. Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They've been torn away from their families in Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and the mighty Babylonian army. And because these young men come from noble backgrounds, the king orders them to be trained to enter his service. These are God-fearing Jewish teenagers. They've been ripped away from everything that they've known, and they're now being trained to work for this pagan king. This begins an assimilation process. The king makes sure that they get the best education that Babylon can offer. For three years, they will be immersed in Babylonian knowledge, culture, history, language, religion. Their Jewish names are changed in favor of new Babylonian names. And at the end of that time, they will enter the king's service and be assured of high-level government positions. It really was a sophisticated form of brainwashing aimed at making them forget their past so that they would form a new allegiance to the king and his pagan way of life. And everything appears to be going smoothly until one guy decides he's not going to go along with the program. The first part of verse 8 tells us all that we need to know, but Daniel was determined. Not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. This is a crucial event of Daniel's life and it's the first point that we're going to consider if you're following along in your outline. Point number one, Daniel is tested. Now, although it might not appear important at the time, Daniel's decision shapes the next 60 plus years of his life. I think it's fair to say that looking back from our perspectives, Daniel's decision perhaps appears a bit odd to us. Now we aren't Jews living in captivity in Babylon, so it's hard for us to understand perhaps what the big fuss was about eating the king's food at the king's table. After all, as far as we can tell, Daniel accepted the bondage He accepted the pagan education, and he evidently even accepted a new pagan name. Now, if you're going to go along with all of that, why worry about something as insignificant as food? What's the big deal here? One commentator pointed out that Daniel had to make three important decisions every day. First, he had to take part in pagan education. But he could disregard those things that he knew to be wrong or untrue. Secondly, he had to be put up with being called a pagan name. But he knew that a name alone could never really change who he was. And then third, he had to eat the pagan food. And at that point, he couldn't escape what it represented. You know, it's intriguing to me that what seems to be the least important of these issues was really the most important to Daniel. But I think this was a young man with a proper sense of priorities. He knew that eventually you've got to draw a line in the sand and say, I can go no farther. So why was Daniel so determined to not eat the king's food? Well, there were at least three problems with the food served at the king's table. First, it certainly would not have been prepared according to the the kosher laws of the Old Testament. Much of it would be ritually unclean. Secondly, all of the wine and most of the meat would have been previously offered as a sacrifice to the various pagan gods of the Babylonians. And then, to eat that food in that situation would be to give tacit endorsement to pagan worship. And then third, Daniel knew that sharing a meal at the king's table represented sharing the king's values. Think about that. Even today, sharing a meal with somebody has somewhat of a symbolic meaning, doesn't it? To eat together implies friendship and support or endorsement or shared values. And so in the end, Daniel could obey the king and even serve in his government, but he could not pretend to be his friend. To eat that food in that situation represented a moral compromise of everything Daniel believed. Therefore, he made up his mind that he would not do it. Now, friends, I think this is hugely important because it teaches us some things. It teaches us that you cannot corrupt a person from the outside. You can change a culture, but not a character. You can change his name, but not his nature. Daniel may have looked like a pagan and dressed like a pagan and been educated in a pagan ideals. But on the inside, he was a servant of the living God. And even the mighty Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do a thing about that. Now I think we should pause at this point just to think about what was it that Daniel was risking. Certainly he risked angering the king who couldn't appreciate hearing that some punk teenage kid from Israel didn't want to eat at his table. No way that could ever be made to sound good. In fact, it would probably sound just like what it was taken to be, a a rebellious teenager. And we know how ancient kings dealt with rebellion, right? (sniffs) Off with your head. So Daniel was literally putting his life on the line. He was also spoiling any chance of, advancement in the king's government if this blows up in Daniel's face he can kiss his future goodbye and we've already mentioned that verse 8 says that he decided he resolved he purposed in his heart that is he made up his own mind he couldn't decide for anyone else but he decided for himself what he would and would not do and that changed everything we don't know if he tried to convince anyone else or not. And really, it doesn't matter. Daniel made up his mind and his three closest friends decided to join him. Though the Babylonians could control virtually everything, diet, location, education, language, even their names, they could not change the hearts of these young men because their hearts belonged to God. And friends, when our hearts belong to God, we can go anywhere and we can face any situation and know that we're going to be okay. Do you believe that? There is great power that we possess. That power frees us to make life-changing decisions. Even risky ones, when we know that we are pleasing the Lord. So the question to ask ourselves is, where is our heart? Does it truly belong to God? Or is our heart fixed on the things of this earth? Verse nine adds another crucial fact when it says, now God, suddenly God enters the picture. He causes Ashpenaz to look with favor upon Daniel and his three friends. And it appears that happened after Daniel's decision, not before. Which then causes us to ask this question. Does God bless those who honor him? Yes, the answer is. Yes, he does. But we don't generally experience that blessing until we take the necessary steps of faith there is blessing reserved for the bold that the timid will never experience. Daniel's proposal was quite simple. He asked that he and his three friends be taken off the the rich diet and just simply be served vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of that time, the guard could make his own comparison and draw his own conclusions. Now, I want you to see something here that I find very interesting. Interesting. There are several attractive features in the way that Daniel made his proposal that I think we can use in our life. First, he was tactful in the way in which he spoke. He didn't demand anything. He simply made a request. Secondly, he was obedient in following the chain of command. Working within the existing system, whether he liked it or not. He wasn't a rabble rouser. He wasn't saying, I've got my rights. No. He was obedient, he was tactful. And then, third, his request was a reasonable one. The test would be over in 10 days, and it didn't require any special work. Fourth, it was easy to evaluate. The guard simply eyeballed the four young men, compared them to the others, and drew his own conclusions. I think that that's very helpful for us as we think about where we stand in a culture filled with confusion. In a world where people are making decisions that are uh, against God's word or God's ways, how will we react? How will we interact as we seek to navigate those difficult waters. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that at the end of the 10 days, the four young men looked better than everybody else on their veggie and all-water diet. All the other guys had been eating pork chops and lobster at the king's table. Well, Daniel and his friends ate broccoli and drank water. They looked so good that the guard allowed them to continue with their strange diet indefinitely. So we see that God blesses those who make up their minds to honor him, even in the midst of tempting and difficult conditions. This leads us to our next point. As a result of Daniel's testing, he is rewarded. Number two, Daniel is rewarded. Let's read together the next section of scripture, beginning in verse 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. The word of God. So this story comes to an end on a very positive note. We discover in these verses that God honors those who honor him. Now, in Daniel's case, this reward came relatively quickly. More often than not, though, it takes some time to experience reward. And sometimes, even when we are faithful, our reward won't be fully realized until we are in heaven with the Lord. But make no mistake, God will faithfully reward those who trust in him. I I mention the timing because it's possible to read this story and get the idea that every time I stand up for my convictions, I'm going to immediately be rewarded. This passage shows that sometimes it does happen that way. But we must remember that God's timing and ours are quite different. Throughout time, Christians have experienced persecution and even death because of their faith. Even today, in many parts of our world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are paying with blood for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So, While we marvel at Daniel's reward, we also need to remember that God deals with us as individuals. Our call is to be faithful, knowing that in the end, whether on earth or in heaven, no one will ever regret standing up for Jesus. Verse 17 informs us that God gave these four young men unusual wisdom and understanding. That guaranteed that they would stand out above the crowd, above their Jewish counterparts, and far above the Babylonians. And these four young men will soon find themselves in positions of enormous influence in a very pagan government. By the way, I want us to notice the order. I think that's very important. First, the decision is made to stand up for what they believe. Second, God honored that decision. And then third, God gave them the wisdom and understanding. We can hardly ask God for wisdom while we are living in a state of spiritual compromise. God honors those who honor him. And so before we ask for the unusual wisdom or the help or the guidance from the Lord, let us do some self-evaluation to make sure that I am honoring God before I ask him to honor me. The last part of verse 17 tells us that God gave Daniel the unique ability to interpret dreams. We're gonna see how that saved his life in the very next chapter that we'll look at next week. Verse 18 skips to the end of that three years of education and now King Nebuchadnezzar examines all the young men himself. This really is the ultimate test They would be questioned in in history and science and economics and Babylonian language and presumably on uh, the various forms of Babylonian religion. These young men had to know everything that all the other young leaders knew. And of course, the result is astounding. The king found them, what, 10 times smarter than the magicians and the enchanters in his kingdom. Talk about moving to the head of the class, right? Right? They immediately entered the king's service. And then verse 21 adds that Daniel remained in the court of Babylon until the first year of Cyrus. That was 539 BC, which means that Daniel served as an advisor to a series of Babylonian kings for at least 60 more years. All this because Daniel was determined to, Not to defile himself by eating from the king's table. Now, before we leave this marvelous first chapter of Daniel, I want to make some specific applications for our lives as followers of Christ. Number one, we must make up our minds in advance that we will be loyal to the Lord. And the key phrase is, in advance. You know, friends, some decisions can't be made on the spur of the moment. We have to decide ahead of time. How will we handle difficult temptations? And by the way, we all face different kinds of temptations, don't we? What you might find tempting, I might not. What I might find tempting might not be a problem for you. And so we must decide ahead of time. How will I face the temptations that I know will come my way. We have to have a game plan ahead of time so that we will not compromise in things that really matter. For Daniel, that meant not eating at the king's table. Our decisions will be in different areas. Your line in the sand may be different from mine and mine from yours, but if we don't draw a line somewhere, sometime, then we will end up just being like all the Babylonians all around us. Make up your mind today to be loyal to the Lord and to his word and to his ways and then think through what is that going to look like in the difficult things that you will face today in today's culture. Areas like life, death and dying, health, sexuality, economics, a multitude of other areas. What will you do when faced with those difficult decisions? Decide ahead of time. And then number two, we must know our limits and not do what we know is wrong. Daniel knew his limits. When they enrolled him at Babylon State University, he didn't object. When they taught him the Babylonian language, he learned it like everybody else. When they taught him a new culture, he didn't rebel. And even when they changed his name, he apparently didn't speak out. But when they said, you have to eat the king's food at the king's table, he said, I'm sorry. I can't do that. And he didn't. He was courteous in the way he said it. He was creative in the solution that he proposed. Daniel saw through the food to the bigger issue underneath. And he knew that for him to eat that food at that table would be an act of disloyalty to his Lord. And that was a line he would not cross. Oh, it's such a small area, we might say, when we're faced with a difficult choice. Is it really that big a deal? But as we have seen, the outcome of Daniel's act of courage was huge. It changed his whole life. It changed the trajectory of history in the world as we know it. In the end, it wasn't small at all, was it? And friends, for followers of Jesus Christ, there really are no small areas. He must be Lord of all, or he's really not Lord at all. Like Daniel, will we find ourselves? We will find ourselves from time to time facing a moral crisis. If it hasn't happened yet, it's coming. How will we know it's a crisis? Well, we'll know when we get there. And often, we won't see it coming in advance. And so let's make up our minds right now that by God's grace, when that moment arrives, we will purpose in our hearts not to be defiled. I read recently about the giant sequoia trees. These are the largest living organisms on the planet. Some of them are more than 3000 years old. These ancient trees have just in the last 20 years or so started dying in numbers never seen before. The death of the trees, some uh, which have lived through the rise and falls of hundreds of empires, have shocked researchers in their speed and novelty. What, what is it that's causing the death of these mag- majestic giants? Is it wildfire, lightning, strong winds? No, no. They've withstood all of those things. Careful examination of the trees that have fallen have shown that they have been attacked from within. From within, beetle attacks appear to have killed the trees in previously unseen ways, claiming mature, standing giant trees known as the monarch trees. These tiny beetles have crawled under the bark and literally eaten the fibers away from the inside. Although the trees looked healthy on the outside, on the inside, they were virtually hollow and one day finally collapsed. That just reminds me, brothers and sisters, that the same thing can happen to you and I when we refuse to stand our ground Jesus Christ. Our incremental compromises with God's truth will attack us from within and eventually those small decisions will add up and we will become hollow on the inside even though we might look great on the outside. So may we choose today to stand firm Purpose in our hearts not to be defiled and serve God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help. Father, we are so grateful that when we come into your kingdom, Lord, that not only are our sins forgiven, but Father, that you bless us with the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, that you walk with us, that you guide us, that you strengthen us, that you help us to do what we could never do on our own. Father, may we be in tune with your spirit so that we can stand firm, so that we can avoid compromise, so that we can honor you and serve your purposes like Daniel and his friends did. Father, may we be used by you in powerful ways to impact world around us, where you've placed us. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.